and Tom Salami here. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Our guest today is our old pal, Dennis War. Dennis, of course, is the CEO and president of Nuvera. Dennis was a guest on MedTech Talk podcast number two. So it was great to uh, have him back to give us an update on Nuvera, formerly known as Holera. And Dennis will explain the name change in the podcast. And uh, Dennis is a wildly successful CEO, having exited both Velocimed and Lutonix, and he appears to be on the road of building another winner. In this conversation, we'll talk about uh, how Dennis got into uh, interventional cardiology, how he thinks that specialty compares to interventional pulmonology, where Nuvera operates, and uh, what he sees as the future of both, uh, both the specialty and, of course, the company that he now leads. It's a, it's a great conversation. I'll be following the respiratory field more closely in the future, both for the MedTech conference and for another project that we'll uh, share some details about in the near future. So it's always great to have a, a visit with Dennis. He's a, uh, a strong supporter and a, a, a powerful force behind the MedTech conference. We're happy to have him involved in that, and I'm extremely happy to have him on this podcast. Dennis Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. Great to uh, have you back. You were you were the number two uh, podcast guest on the MedTech Talk podcast, so uh, we're happy to have you back to to bring us uh, up to speed on where your company Nuvera is uh, is at. And uh, before we get into that, though, I'm curious, and I don't know if you've ever had this conversation. How did you become an interventional cardiologist? What was your your path to medicine? I was biased by my experience uh, doing, during my medicine training, huh. and and when I was doing my internal medicine training at the University of Michigan, I uh, it was it was right at the beginning of uh, of the angioplasty uh, era when angio, angioplasty had had just been introduced to the United States in a very few centers while I was an intern in medicine. And that that there was this great excitement, you know, about the fact that you might be able to to uh, uh, treat patients minimally invasively mm-hmm. as opposed to doing the big surgical thing. And so there was a real wave of excitement that I got caught up in. So that that is what biased me then to uh, after I finished my internal medicine training to apply for cardiology fellowship at UCSF in California. Uh, and and um, that's that's how it happened. That I, I think these things get sometimes specialties are picked by people because of the time and place and what's going on in the specialty and 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 that's certainly what happened to me. Never had any regrets. You know, it's been a, it's a, been a great uh great uh, uh great experience. I've been part of all of this um uh, uh, development, particularly in the cardiovascular world, which now has spilled over into a lot of other organ systems as well. Well, that's and that's why we're we're here today to talk about Nuvera. Uh, where are we? Do you think in the in the interventional pulmonology stage? I mean, it's a, an area where we've seen a lot of investments in in startups over the past decade or more. Uh, some have worked, some haven't. Uh, do you see parallels between interventional cardiology and uh, interventional pulmonology? Yes. I, I would say that right now, interventional pulmonary is about in the same position where cardiology was in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and people forget that uh, everybody now looking back thinks that interventional cardiology just exploded onto the scene you know, in one or two years. But people forget that that. Uh, Andreas Grunzig did the first 
uh, percutaneous coronary angioplasty in 1977. Wow. And the field of interventional cardiology did not really explode until after some big barriers were solved. One was uh, you had to, it was the restenosis problem after simple balloon angioplasty, you know, was a, was a barrier to adoption. And then the other thing that was a, uh, a big barrier, even after bare metal stents came in, was the problem of abrupt closure, and that and that problem didn't get solved until uh, until the um, uh, until the invention of Plavix, which allowed dual antiplatelet therapy, aspirin plus Plavix, which basically eliminated abrupt closure. And and it was in the late 90s uh, when when those problems were solved, and that's when the big growth happened. Mm-hmm. And so and so if you think about that. That was almost 20 years after the time of the first coronary angioplasty. So if you look at interventional pulmonary right now, the initial companies that were bringing interventional procedures uh, forward uh, began in the early 2000s. And now here we are 15 years later, and I actually believe that that um, that right now interventional pulmonary is sneaking up on that type of a growth that inflection point that we saw in the late nineties with cardiology. If that answers your question, it I does. think there's a real parallel there. What what do you have you identified the barriers or barrier that needed to be cleared? Was it technical, the technology was it being used? Was it understanding the physiology? Was it the the uh, the uh, uh, attitudes or, or the openness of, of, of physicians, a little bit of everything. Uh, what what barrier have we cleared to kind of give this? Uh, I, give I think this it's all light? of it. I, you know, I, I think everything you mentioned is is correct. Certainly, you, you know, at the beginning there there were no interventional pulmonologists. Like just like in the eighties, there were no interventional cardiologists. Um, so, so your first wave of interventionalists have had to be trained. You know, I would say there's probably now. Uh, in what I would call bona fide true interventional pulmonologists, you're probably looking at 150 to 200 in the world, you know, with about uh, half of them being in Europe and half in the U.S., but that's getting to critical mass. There's now uh, there's now board certification required for interventional pulmonary. So, so the fact that there are physicians trained uh, that that box is checked, uh, but the new therapies, particularly uh, treatments for um, you know, navigation systems to be able to get to the right place in the lungs. They're becoming uh, perfected. Lung volume reduction therapy, whether that be coils or uh, valves, uh, uh, um, uh, where initially studies were done, but just like in the early days of cardiology, uh, the physiology wasn't fully understood and, and which patients respond, the, respond uh, will respond the best. Mm-hmm. It wasn't worked out yet. Now those answers are coming together. I think you're going to see uh, in over the next few years, new clinical studies coming out that are going to be strongly positive uh, for uh, patient outcomes in interventional pulmonary. So I think we're right, we're right on that cusp. And and you came to this company to Nuvera, and I want to get into what Nuvera does in a few minutes. Uh, with success in uh, interventional cardiology, cardiology with two with two companies that were created, one was a drug eluting uh, stent device, uh, balloon stent device, Lutonix. The other, Velocid, was a little more classic interventional cardiology. Uh, did you anticipate seeing parallels between the two specialties when you when you joined to lead? 
uh, Nuvera and, and did those were those similarities there? Were there parallels, or was it a lot more different than than you thought it would be? I think that uh, the the parallels are there, but I think that I think the clinical development program is uh, required in pulmonary is is more is is more sophisticated, you know, more challenging than what cardiology was. And the reason is, is because um, regulatory bars have been raised, um, not because of pulmonary, there's just been raised across all specialties. Um, the science of, you know, good clinical investigation has gotten, you know, the, the bar has gotten higher there. And I, and, and I also think that the field of pulmonologists, the specialty of pulmonology is extremely data driven. They've been, they've been dealing with, with clinical investigations, lots of them from the pharmaceutical world. And the pharmaceutical world runs very sophisticated clinical studies, as you know, and that's the, that's the bar that, uh, that the pulmonologists are used to, and they expect the same kind of data from devices that they get from, from drugs, and that's the way it should be. So we are running uh, here at, at Nuvera a clinical program that's, that's more sophisticated you know, than what than what we used to do in the cardiology world. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of clarity for folks, it, the company is Nuvera. It was previously Holera. And when you started, it was IPS, right? Innovative. Uh... Pulmonary Solutions. Right. It was funny. We, yeah, it was the first name was Interventional Pulmonary Solutions, which was like 13 syllables. So we, we were told <laughs> we needed to have a, have a shorter, a shorter name. So we, we we named it Holera, and then we had a trademark issue with the word Holera, and so that that necessitated a change to Novera. Well, this is so we're not one. very good at naming. We're we're, <laughs> we're not very good at naming here. I think we're good at clinical at clinical studies, but we have to work on the ability to name the company. Oh, uh, that's what matters. That's what you, your your strengths are where it matters. Hey, everyone, time here. I want to take a quick break to thank those folks who took the time earlier this week to uh, help us out. We had our MedTech Conference Steering Committee in Minneapolis on Monday. Uh, we had a couple of dozen people show up to uh, talk MedTech for an hour and a half. It was a great conversation. I wish I could have recorded it and run that as a podcast because it was very insightful. But the good news is we'll use those insights to build a uh, terrific agenda for the MedTech Conference, which is happening on May 31st at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. Now back to this conversation with Dennis War. So we, you, when we talked to you last on that first uh, MedTech Talk podcast, you had told me after Lutonix, you took off six months, you had a sabbatical, you needed, a, you know, you wanted to take some time uh, that you didn't take when you had sold off Velocimed. What was it about uh, the the opportunity that is now Nuvera? What was it about this company that uh, that drew you back into the game? Well, during the six months that I was on sabbatical, I I. I I looked at a lot of different opportunities and I, I knew I was going to be very selective. And when I, when, when, when I was presented the opportunity to join uh, this company as the CEO and I, and I looked, and I looked at the technology, it literally was the kind of technology that sent, that sent tingles down my spine because I thought that, that this technology had the potential to be for interventional pulmonary, what, literally the angioplasty balloon was for cardiology mm -hmm. because the, 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 the clinical problem being addressed was COPD, which is the third leading cause of death in the world. And, you know, one of the, one of the largest uh, uh, economic burdens on the healthcare system in the world. 
So it was a huge unmet need, but this therapy uh, is uh, not only not only uh, we believe it has a big impact on efficacy for treating COPD patients, but it's applicable to to a large a large percent of the patients that have COPD. So so it and then and then finally it has the potential to save dollars by by improving long-term outcomes. And so it has not only the great, the great clinical benefit, but it has a, econo- a potential economic benefit, uh, which I think is, is, is really exciting. So was there any hesitation joining the company because it was in pulmonary and not in a space you were familiar with, or is a device a device in your mind? No, I, you know, I, I was excited about the opportunity to join the, the company. And I think I had, however, I did have the realistic, um, I, I think I, I had a realistic impression of uh, that it would take a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, when I met with the board, you know, I, I, I told them that, that I recommended that we, we, do a sophisticated phase two clinical program. The study, the company was halfway through their, 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 their phase one clinical study. And I recommended the board that I thought because the therapy had so much potential, it was going to be important that the company not go straight from feasibility trial straight to a pivotal trial, which is what a lot of uh, uh, medical device companies have done in some cases um, to their regret because they wound up running pivotal trials without fully understanding their, 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 their treatment. So what we did is we, after finishing the phase one trial, we went into a sophisticated phase two study, mm-hmm. which actually itself has involved two clinical trials. We did a, what we call a phase two A trial, which was another registry. And, and now we've completed a phase two B trial, which was a, a randomized sham control trial, literally a full double-blind sham controlled study, which is not pivotal trial, but a phase 2B trial. This similar to this is the similar way that the pharmaceutical companies develop their products, you know, with large phase 2 um, studies, and we took that approach with our product. And how does that? It's it's easy to say that you're taking the same approach as pharma, but that, that that's expensive, <laughs> and it, they're complex trials. It's and, expensive, and they're necessary. But how? Uh, I guess how different is this than yeah than the Lutonix experience, and and how do you approach it with investors, uh, with KOLs? How, how much more uh, effort goes into convincing investors and KOLs and everyone to kind of come along for this much much longer ride? Well, I think I think the our, the investors when we raised our our large Series D uh, financing to fund this Phase Two program, the, the story played well. I mean, the story was. Hey, we're going to raise forty million dollars now to go out and run two clinical trials. That's going to that are that's going to take a little more than three years to do. Uh, and the reason is why this is good is is because if these two tri- these two trials will prove the value proposition for the for the product and will will virtually totally de-risk the pivotal trial. So you won't wind up running a very expensive pivotal trial unless we know it's going to work ahead of time. And, and on the other hand, if this phase two program fails, uh, well, um, that's not good, mm-hmm. but it's still better than having spending all the money on the pivotal trial and finding out at that point in time. 
So, so I think you win either way. And it was that story. It was that story that played. Let's, let's, let's take a step back and, and introduce to those who didn't listen to MedTech Talk podcast number two, which was three years ago. Uh, tell us about the, the Navera system. How does it, how does it work and what does it do? Well, uh, what we do is is we we denervate the nerves that go to the lung that cause airways to constrict. You know, so by attenuating those nerves, the 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 uh, narrowed airways in the lung are able to dilate, uh, open, and the patients can breathe easier. Uh, and we do this procedure through a we use RF energy. It's an RF energy catheter which is placed through the working channel of a flexible bronchoscope. So the patients are put under, uh, you know, are anesthetized, and, and, and bronchoscopy is a routine procedure done, done uh, 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 commonly and by interventional pulmonologists. So they're already f- familiar with that. Uh, so they put the flexible bronchoscope down uh, into the right and left mainstem uh, areas of the lungs, and then our catheter goes through that working channel, and we apply the RF energy, thermal energy, uh, 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 to the to the two main airways, the left main stem and the right main stem, takes about, procedure takes about uh, 20 minutes to do on each side, so just those two places, and then and you take everything out and you're done. Uh, the entire procedure from the time the patient goes on the table until they get off the table is generally about an hour. Uh, it, the, the procedure could, we think in the future, be, be literally uh, um, uh, done on an outpatient basis. The, the benefit from the patients is, is the benefit to the patient is realized very quickly. Um, with literally within uh, a, a day, uh, the pa- you, you can document that the patients can breathe can breathe better. That's outstanding. And where are we with the? We mentioned the clinical studies that you required to do. You've got several, and, and I should say there's on your website, and it's uh, it's nuvera.com, n-u-v-a-i-r-a.com. We'll have the website up on the uh, along with the podcast. There's a great video uh, uh, showing the the uh, the present. Sorry, showing the procedure. Uh, great uh, animation showing how it's done, and also a list of your clinical trials. So you've got the airflow and the relief one trials. So what what are the uh, the objectives of the two trials? We have now completed um, three clinical trials. Okay. Uh, the first clinical trial was the phase one IPS called IPS study. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that data is out and published in the journal Thorac. It's also on the website. Then we went forward and did what we called the airflow one trial, which was our, um, uh, uh, a registry involved uh, 46 patients. And uh, that data was presented uh, uh, publicly this summer mm-hmm. at the European Respiratory Society meeting. And that, that information is out there public as well. Uh, at this point, we have completed the Airflow 2 trial, which was our first randomized double-blind sham controlled trial. That, that, that study is all the patients are treated, and the data from that study will be available to us uh, in uh, early next year in the January-February timeframe of 2018. So those patients are about two-thirds of their way through the follow-up period right now. Um, there is a fourth study wow. that we are just kicking off right now, which is called the Relief One trial, and that actually is a Phase One trial for the treatment of asthma patients. All of the first three trials were done on COPD patients. Uh, 
and so uh, Relief One is actually our first trial in asthma patients. The, the therapy works, we, we believe, will work the same way for asthma patients that it does for COPD patients. And uh, we anticipate that the Airflow 3 trial, which is our pivotal U.S. study, will begin in early uh, 2019, so a little over one year from now. So how was the data received in Europe when you presented that short time ago? I think there's a, I think there's a lot of, uh, my impression was a lot of, a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, to, to really summarize it as succinctly as I can, it appears that, that uh, we have the same, we, we, we definitely have a, uh, uh, a clinical effect equal to that of drug therapy. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the combination, uh, if you, if you do this therapy and also add drugs, uh, it appears you can, the, the impact can, is, is, is about twice as good as drugs alone. So a common question we get asked all the time, do you see this therapy as something that's an alternative to drugs or do you see it as something that, that will be used in conjunction with drugs mm-hmm. uh, is, a, is, is um, um, something that, that, that we're considering, uh, you know, putting a lot of thought into and the answer probably is it's, it, it most likely will be both. You know, and that some patients, the only thing they would need done is this and other patients, you know, if they're very severe, might need both. But that, that will, but all of this will depend upon how the data looks in the pivotal trial and how and how uh, um, long-term follow-up, uh, how the long-term follow-up appears on uh, on patients. Right now, we have some patients out to two years of follow-up, but obviously how 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 durable the therapy is out to years three, four, five, you know, will also, you know, play into this long term treatment algorithm. Do you have a decision date in mind or year in mind when you'd like to get uh, something before the FDA and have them decide? I don't want to suggest when you're anticipating FDA approval, but do you have a timeline in mind as to when all of this may lead to a commercial launch in the US if you're so lucky? On our timeline, we're projecting U.S. approval if all goes well in the year 2021, mm-hmm. so about three to four years from now. And it sounds like a long time, but that is how long it takes to to uh, uh, launch, run, follow up, uh, do follow up on the patients, and then uh, submit an ID uh, a PMA to the to the FDA. That doesn't seem like but that there, long. The, 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 yeah, the, the, it, it goes fast. It goes, fast. You know, it goes faster <laughs> than you think. <laughs> But you are you you did you did bring about aboard a, a commercial officer. You are rolling out in uh, in Europe. Yes, we just hired uh, uh, a few months ago Shane Gleason, uh, who is uh, our chief commercialization officer, and and we anticipate that we will be doing uh, targeted. We call it a phase one um, uh, commercial launch. Um, uh, uh, beginning about one year from now, uh, in late 18 or early 19, we do we do targeted commercialization, uh, uh, which we feel uh, will be um, uh, uh, driven or supported by the results of our randomized sham controlled trial that will preserve well, that we will present next year publicly. Uh, that will be what supports a commercial effort. However, the goal of our commercialization will not be will not be the kind of a commercial launch that that big companies do. Mm-hmm. This will be 
this will be a, a commercial launch that will be primarily for our investigators that are already trained on the device for select patients, and the goal will be to help us perfect our commercial our our uh, our, our commercial um, skill set, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. what's the right way to do it, and train physicians, and 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 to prove that that the product is is commercially viable. Did you use a similar philosophy with uh, Lutonix and Velocimed? I think both of those had European approval, but not U.S. approval when they were required. Yes. You know, we, we, view, we view trying to do a commercial launch in parallel with, with running the pivotal trial is, I mean, doing a big commercial launch is not you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself. Um, um, Going out and trying to commercialize outside the U S is a great way to spend money, but not necessarily a great way to make money. Uh, (laughs) It just, the the, the models haven't shown that that really works very well for, for companies. So that the purpose of our commercial launch will not be to make the company um, profitable. It will be to, to prove that it is, that 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 our commercial model works when done on a limited scale, so that people have confidence in that. So when the pivotal trial ends in the year 2020, then you are really you know ready to go on at that time, which would be a, a commercial launch the way the way big companies think about it. Interesting. So what do you need to do next? Um, obviously, the FDA trials and clinical trials are expensive. Are you in a position where you're going to need to raise more capital? Uh, do you have a, a strategy in mind for that? What type of investors you may be approaching? Yes, we will we'll be going out in the second quarter next year uh, with our Airflow 2 randomized sham control data in hand uh, to raise, to raise the, the capital necessary to run the pivotal trial as well as start our targeted uh, um, uh, commercialization efforts outside the U.S. So we'll have one more one more round of financing to do. Do you anticipate approaching strategics about there? Is is there are there strategics investing in uh, in interventional pulmonary companies like there are, there are in other specialties? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and we'll we'll be doing we'll be talking to both strategics as well as. Um, uh, um, private equity firms, you know, and, and the VC firms, uh, uh, both. And what sort of reception are you getting from, uh, from KOLs, uh, to this idea? And, and, and do you think it'll be a challenge to, uh, well, it hasn't been a challenge to get people to participate in, in your clinical trials or, or, or have they been really open to, to using this new approach? I uh, know it's, we've had no trouble at all. The, uh, uh we're, we, we basically are at 16 medical centers in Europe right now, you know, so it's a nice selection to be uh, split between five different co- countries. So it's, uh, um, so we, we feel like we, we have, a um, a nice, a nice group right now. Uh, we could, we, we could easily, easily, um, Double that the number of centers in Europe if if we felt a need to, um, but you know I, I mean we have strong inbound interest. You know we also have a lot of interest from the U.S. interventional pulmonologists. In fact, we'll probably be beginning our site selection process uh, for the U.S. centers in the trial uh, uh, early next year. So we're sneaking up on that as well, site selection for the U.S. phase of our program. So no, uh, no sabbaticals for you in the near future, it sounds like. No. <laughs> no. No. Excellent. 
Well, it's great to get an update on uh, on Nuvera. It sounds like things are going great, and uh, it's exciting to see a new a new specialty uh, that one that we've heard about before, but to to really sort of see it mature and 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 get its legs. Yeah, we're we're, we're getting there, you know. So <laughs> it'll be fun. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. All right, thanks. That's a wrap, Dennis War. Once again, always great to have you on the podcast. Great to talk to you wherever you are. Best of luck to Nevera. I'll be following your progress closely. Thank you, MedTech Talk Podcast listeners, for joining us. Do us a few favors. Let your friends know about the podcast. Uh, our numbers are going up. I'm really gratified by that. I really enjoy this podcast. I mean, really enjoy MedTech. So I uh, love to see other folks listening or, or see that other folks are listening. So thank you for spreading the word. You can also do that by giving us a ranking on iTunes. That will help others find the podcast. Finally, do shoot me an email, tom at healthag.com. I do answer them. I actually uh, got one a couple weeks ago that led to a great conversation with uh, some folks that I hope to be uh, working with on uh, on another event in the near future. So it's uh, wonderful to hear from our listeners. So reach out, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health. Followed by the letters EGY.com. Help with you, of course, the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and the MedTech Conference. Thanks again, everyone. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.